The book of Revelation is, in, in large measure, is given over to a story having to do with two great cities and the conflict between them. On one side, there's Babylon, the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations, drunk with the blood of the saints. On the other side is the New Jerusalem, the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Jerusalem, the city by whose light the nations of the earth will walk, the city in which death shall be no more. Both of these cities are linked in essential ways with real bricks and mortar earthly cities. Babylon's earthly manifestation is clearly the city of Rome, the city set on seven hills, as we read in chapter 17. This city of Rome, Babylon, is at the center of a worldwide empire of subjugation, domination, exploitation, and wealth. The New Jerusalem, of course, is the purified and renewed version of earthly Jerusalem, described elsewhere in Revelation as the holy city and the beloved city. But the cities and the conflict between them exist at a more cosmic level as well. The cities are archetypical as well as actual. As with other apocalyptic literature of the period, the conflict experienced by the faithful people of God is just the earthly manifestation of spiritual realities and conflicts taking place at a cosmic or heavenly level. Chapters 6 to 22 of Revelation tells the story of this two-level conflict, a story graphic in its detail, sometimes confusing in its sequence, but a story whose outcome is clear. The final overthrow of Babylon and the appearance of the new Jerusalem, the center of a new worldwide kingdom of justice, peace, healing, and the joyful presence of God. John, the prophet who reveals this apocalyptic tale of two cities, believes that the storm clouds of the coming conflict are already visible, especially in instances of persecution that are being experienced by believers in Jesus. And so he writes to warn his readers of what is to come and to prepare them to stand firm in face of the ordeal that will soon fall upon them. Which brings us to today's reading. Babylon and the New Jerusalem are not the only cities in the book of Revelation. John addresses his work to churches in seven additional cities, all located in the Roman province of Asia, Western Turkey in today's terms. Chapters 2 and 3 contain letters addressed to the churches in these cities, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Each of the letters follows a similar pattern, which you could have discerned from the reading this morning, um, a statement identifying the content of the letter as the words of the risen Jesus, who is then described in terms that echo the vision in chapter 1. Then, a word of praise for the positive aspects of the church's faith and witness. Then, a corresponding word of rebuke for ways in which they have fallen short or compromised their loyalties. And finally, some words about the future, 
usually combining warnings of judgment and promises of salvation with a special promise to the one who conquers, probably a reference to martyrs. These cities are frequently mentioned in Greek and Roman writings. In addition, there are significant archaeological remains, especially in the case of those that have not been buried under modern cities, specifically Ephesus, Pergamum, Sardis, and Laodicea. Thus, we can know quite a bit about them and about what daily life might have been like in the first century. All of them came under Roman rule in the second century before Christ, and they enjoyed a fairly peaceful and prosperous existence in the centuries that followed. I've had a couple of opportunities over the years to tramp through these archaeological sites, including a trip about a dozen years ago with a Wycliffe group. Spending time in these cities, one readily begins to imagine the everyday life of the people who once lived there especially as one walks along the ancient streets and sees things that would have been part of their daily existence. Colonnaded walkways alongside the main streets, shops lining the streets or opening onto the colonnades, theaters, stadiums, and meeting halls, public baths and gymnasiums, aqueducts, public fountains, and other water supply installations, luxury houses and humble apartment blocks, and all of this in a very pleasant climate. I probably wasn't the only one who found myself thinking that if I had been born in the first century, this would have been a pretty good place to live. And so reading these letters from our vantage point and with a little bit of knowledge about the world of the first readers, we cannot help but wonder, or at least I can't help wondering, how the letters would have struck them as they went about their daily lives in one or other of these cities. Now, I certainly don't want to paint an unrealistically rosy picture of the situation facing urban Christians in the late first century. Those who benefited most from the peace and prosperity enjoyed by these cities were the ones at the top of the social scale. For those farther down, life would have been much more of a struggle. Further, Christians faced a lot of negative social pressure, dislike, hostility, discrimination, persecution, occasionally going as far as martyrdom. And a lot of this was at least tolerated and sometimes carried out by civic and imperial authorities. Still, the lines that John was drawing between Babylon and the New Jerusalem were stark, clear, and uncompromising. Whereas many aspects of their own daily lives, it seems to me, would have seemed to them to occupy a much more ambiguous area in between the two. Further, John devotes much of his letters to warnings about traits and behavior that he fears will put some of them on the wrong side of the line. Again, I don't want to downplay the significance of these things, accepting false teachers, eating meat that had been sacrificed to polytheistic gods in local temples, complacency in Christian devotion and discipleship, sexual immorality, although this term is probably metaphorical for the worship of other gods. Still, to pick up on just one of these, John's attitude towards meat sacrificed to idols is quite extreme, 
especially when compared to the more nuanced position that Paul puts forward in his Corinthian letters. Again, one cannot help thinking that Christian existence in these seven cities was characterized by much more ambiguity than John's sharp line of division seems to permit. In addition, although John says that he is writing about things that will soon take place and says to the believers in Philadelphia that Jesus is coming soon, we are well aware that we, just like the original readers of Revelation, are still living on this side of the apocalypse. We, like them, also find ourselves living in the ambiguous space in between Babylon and the New Jerusalem. So my question about the original readers is also our own question. As we read John's letters to the churches in these seven cities, sitting here in the city of Toronto, what are we to make of them and of the larger revelation for which they serve as an introduction? I mentioned a moment ago, moment ago that Revelation belongs to a body of literature that juxtaposes events taking place on two uh, interconnected levels, the earthly and the cosmic or heavenly. A similar kind of juxtaposition happens in the temporal dimension as well. One of the features of prophetic literature is that, is that it juxtaposes two crisis moments, a perceived situation of crisis facing the people of God in the present, and the larger, more ultimate crisis that will come in the future. This, I suggest, might help us as we read the book of Revelation. John places the crisis that he sees emerging in the present against the background of the ultimate crisis that will precede Christ's coming in the future, a crisis that will pit the forces of evil against the purposes of God and that will bring this age to an end and culminate in the establishment of God's kingdom. The purpose of this prophetic juxtaposition, however, is not to provide us with a speculative timetable of future events, despite the attempts of zealous and zany television evangelists to tell us otherwise. Rather, its purpose has to do more with the present than the future. In order to make sense of our present situation, in all its ambiguity and perplexity, we need to see our own circumstances against the background of the final ultimate crisis, where extraneous issues will be stripped away and fundamental issues will stand out in all their clarity. In order to know how to shape our lives as Christian persons and communities now, we need to start with what we have been given to know about the end and then to work backwards to the present. What have we been given to know about the end? Well, the answers to this question will weave their way through the remainder of this preaching series. But perhaps the most important thing is this. The ultimate question that will face us is whether our allegiance will be given to Christ and the God whom he reveals, whether when the lines are clearly drawn, we will be found on the side of the line that marks out the kingdom of God and of his Christ. This is not to say that nothing else matters, rather that in the end, when the mists are lifted and reality is laid fully open to view, it will be clearly seen how all, that all that matters is grounded in and bounded by Christ himself.
This is the future within which we need to place our present existence. This is the future on which we need to fix our eyes as we continue to live in that ambiguous space, in this ambiguous space, in between Babylon and the New Jerusalem. In the name of Christ, the Alpha and the Omega. Amen. <laughs>